If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. We've been working through a verse-by-verse study of this incredible uh, testimony of the early church, the book of Acts. It has been such a blessing and encouragement to me. I hope it has been to you. We're in chapter 5. We're going to finish this chapter, Lord willing, this morning in verses 33 through 42. I've entitled the message this morning as Counted Worthy. Counted worthy, and you'll see that here in our text together this morning. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 33, here's what the Apostle Luke writes. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you have are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 men joined him. He was killed and those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in these days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful again this morning that we have the opportunity to look at your word and to be encouraged by the example of the apostles who were not perfect, but certainly lived out with incredible courage and incredible resolve to be counted worthy, to suffer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for their zeal for evangelism and their passion to preach the word. And I just pray that you would help us to look at their example this morning in a way that we would wanna look to Christ as our rock and our fortress and our savior and our God. And we pray that you would just speak to us through your word this morning in a way that would encourage us and enlighten us and help us to be bold witnesses for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray pray. Amen. Counted worthy. That's what we're looking at this morning. And as we kick off our sermon today, I just wanted to say that evangelism is hard. What we see these apostles doing throughout the book of Acts, it's really hard. Sharing the gospel with other people, whether it is a person that you've never seen before, or a neighbor, or a co-worker, Carrying out the Great Commission can be at times, and it is oftentimes, very intimidating. I mean, first of all, you're trying to talk about something that many people don't want to talk about. Most people don't immediately just open up about their personal views of faith or of morality or even of eternal life. It's just not something we talk about in our normal conversation. It can be very challenging to get into that kind of conversation about spiritual things. Transitioning from a conversation about the weather or sports or family life to a conversation about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ can be very difficult. So how exactly are we to do it? Well, let me just give you this morning by way of introduction, this isn't in your notes, but I'm just gonna give you five important things to keep in mind, you can jot these down if you want, when you're trying to share the gospel with another person. Number one, ask good questions you need to be willing to initiate in today's culture. You have to approach another person and just start asking them questions. Maybe you just even start off by spending some time asking about their lives and just kind of how their day's going, what's going on in their life in a way that would be meaningful and helpful. And then at some point in that conversation, you're gonna have to ask a transitional question about faith. You're gonna have to at some point ask a question that would kind of help take that conversation where you want it to go. I love Acts chapter eight, where there's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah, and the prophet asked, 
Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip had the courage to just ask him a question. Hey, I see you're reading through Isaiah. Do you know what you're reading? And so we need to be able as Christians to ask good questions. And sometimes they may be really simple questions like, do you go to church anywhere? Are you of any particular faith? Um, do you believe in God? Those are just some, some examples of just basic questions you could ask to get into that conversation. And so number one, ask good questions. Number two, steer the conversation. Steer that conversation. When Paul was arrested in the temple, he was eventually brought before Felix, and in Acts 24, they were accusing him of all kinds of things. They were accusing him of stirring up riots, of being the ringleader of the Nazarenes, of profaning the temple. But when Paul had an opportunity to respond to that, he just wanted to preach Jesus. He didn't want to necessarily go tit for tat and talking about all the things they're complaining about as they brought some false accusations against him. He just wanted to steer that conversation and talk about Christ. And we need to be able to do the same thing, to steer that conversation in a way that the topic of the conversation can go in the direction that we want it to go. Otherwise, they're going to keep talking about the weather. They're going to keep talking about themselves forever. And they're going to be talking about the vaccine. That's what people are talking about today. All right, that's what's going to happen. And you need to be strong enough while still being kind to have a conversation about eternal things. You could ask them a question like, if they were to die today, do they think that they would go to heaven? If they say yes or I hope so, you could ask that famous evangelism explosion question from the 90s. If you were to die today and go to heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would your answer be? It's just a way to kind of help steer the conversation to get into something of substance, to ask them. The third issue to keep in mind in evangelism would be this. Number three, acknowledge the problem of sin acknowledge the problem of sin. You could ask them if they had ever, if they have ever sinned. Most people today would still admit to not being perfect, that there's some people who don't want to get into a, you know, that's either obedient or disobedient type of mindset, but we understand from human nature that people know that they're sinners. And so you can remind them that telling a lie or getting angry or being selfish, or, or those are all sins. You, you can remind them what the Bible says about Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, you can tell them that, that God is glorious, that God God is holy, that God is the judge of the earth, and a, and a good God will punish sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's my favorite verse to share with an unbeliever. Just really straightforward. The wages of our sin is death, but God gives a free gift. It's eternal life, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can transition to number four, point to Christ as the only solution. Point to Christ as the only solution. There's really no other way to share the gospel without sharing Christ. We are not ultimately inviting a person into a religion or to a particular church. We're inviting them into a personal relationship with Jesus. And we're also trying to make sure that they understand that Jesus is not a way to heaven, but that Jesus is the way to heaven. Yes, Jesus is God, but that was looking for, he's the way to heaven, right? We want people to know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by me. That has got to be crystal clear in your evangelism because people of faith will talk to you until you kind of start to get into that point, and then they're going to start backing out. And that's okay because we're going to be faithful to lovingly yet firmly declare that Christ is the only way to heaven. You cannot get to heaven by being a good person. You cannot get to heaven by being nice to people. You cannot get to heaven if you're trying to get there on your own good works. And then, of course, in evangelism, number five, the fifth thing to keep in mind here is you want to call them to repentance, to call them to repentance. There's really no easy way to do this. You simply should call them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You should explain to them that repentance is turning from their sin and turning to Jesus. It's doing a 180. It's doing an about face. You're heading in one direction and you repent of your sin. You lay your sin down at the cross, so to speak, and knowing that you've been cleansed by Christ 
Christ and his sacrifice, and then you turn and you follow him by faith. It's by faith that there's got to be repentance that's granted to you, and there's got to be full-fledged belief or faith in Jesus. And of course, that's what Jesus talks about over and over again. The first words out of his mouth in Matthew 3, 2 were from Christ. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And Luke uses the word repent here in Acts five times. He uses it five times throughout the book of Acts. Uh, In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Acts 3.19, repent, therefore turn back from your sins that they may be blotted out. Acts 8.22, repent therefore of the wickedness of your sin and pray to the Lord that he may save you. Acts 17 verse 30, at times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then in Acts 26, 19 through 20, when Paul's before Agrippa, he says that he should repent and turn to God and then perform deeds in keeping with repentance. And all I'm saying is these five things to keep in mind in evangelism will help you do evangelism in a biblically faithful way. We, we've got to call people to repent. We can't just allow people to wallow in their sin. We can't just allow them to, to, to sit around and, and we can't just watch them die in their sin and go to hell. We are to be faithful evangelists. We are to be powerful proclaimers of the gospel. We are to be earnest in our plea, loving in our demeanor, and fearless in our cause. Some plant some water, but God will reap the harvest. Now, our job is let us exalt Christ. May we seek to honor him. Let us be faithful ambassadors and fearless soldiers and loyal witnesses. Let us be accurate in our message, precise in our words, and unwavering in our example. And because of Jesus, may God help us to be obedient to our calling, and may we be steadfast in our testimony and dedicated to the Great Commission. Now, if you're doing all those things I've said, that's already a sermon in itself, right? But if you're doing that kind of evangelism, what I want to talk to you about this morning is there are three responses that a person can have to that kind of preaching of the gospel. And we see it here in our text this morning, as I've already read to you, verses 33 through 42, we see three different ways that people responded to what the apostles are doing, which is they're preaching the gospel. And in short, here are the three responses. You can get mad You can be indifferent, or you can affirm the gospel by faith. You can get mad, you can be indifferent, or you can affirm the gospel by faith. Let's look at those three now uh, throughout our message together. The first heading is, if you're getting mad, then obviously you have an aversion full of anger and malice, an aversion full of anger and malice to the gospel. Your first blank, if you're taking notes, is that they heard what was said. They heard what was said, and we see that, of course, in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So we're jumping in verse 33. If you weren't with us the last couple of weeks, what is this that they heard? They heard this, and so if you look up to verse 28, we see that Uh, The apostles here have been faithfully preaching the word. They have been arrested and put into a public prison for preaching the gospel. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak all the words of life. And so that's what the apostles did. Early the next morning, they were found preaching the gospel in the temple. And the apostles then brought in, uh, they were brought in a second time, this is last week, for questioning at the Jewish council. And then in verse 28, to look at Acts 5, 28, the council told them, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you have intended to bring this man's blood on us. So they were preaching the gospel faithfully about Christ's death, about the blood that he shed, and they clearly taught as well about his resurrection. If you look at verse 29, Peter then answers uh, the council together with the apostles, and they said, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, we're going to keep 
preaching Jesus. Nobody can silence us. No one's going to put a muzzle on our mouth. No one can tell us, you can't do that anymore. We're going to keep preaching Jesus. Verse 30 through 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as the leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Would you say that the apostles were pretty clear? Were they being ambiguous? Were they being fuzzy? Were they just like, oh, you know, you just gotta have faith, just gotta give God a chance. You know, they're being very articulate in their preaching of the gospel, and so that's why verse 33 says, when they heard this, when they heard this articulation of the gospel, when they heard this, that the Israelites themselves were guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus, when they heard this, that the apostles were preaching the gospel, when they heard what they said and they heard with clarity that they had killed Jesus Christ, the council heard with clarity that God had raised him from the dead as leader and as savior. The council heard with clarity that they were to repent in order to be forgiven of their sins. They heard with clarity that the Holy Spirit would be given to those who obey, who obey him. How did they respond? Well, when they heard this, your next blank says, now we see here in the middle of verse 33, they were enraged. They were enraged. They were angry. They were mad. They were enraged. The NASB, if you're looking at that translation this morning, says they were cut to the quick. This means they were cut to the heart. That word enraged means to be infuriated. They weren't just a little angry. They were very angry. In fact, that word enraged is only used twice in the book of Acts, here in Acts 5.33 and then again in chapter 7. Turn over a page or two in your scripture there in Acts and look at 7. This is uh, Stephen who's preaching the gospel uh, to the Jews. And there in verse 52, we see that in word enraged used the second, only the second time in Acts. And it says this uh, in verse 54. I'll start in 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were, here's our word again, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Unbelievers hate believers. Those who have been deceived, they hate the truth. Those who are in the darkness, they hate the light. I mean, that's what the word of God does. It cuts like a knife. It exposes evil. It bears witness to the truth. This is further illustrated in that familiar verse of Hebrews, chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And instead of yielding to the truth, these authorities had hardened their hearts. They had done the same thing to Jesus in spite of the abundant evidence, and now they're doing the same thing to the apostles' teaching, and they violently opposed these so-called blasphemers. They thought Jesus was a blasphemer, and now they think these apostles are blasphemers. And so what do they want to do? The end of verse 33, they wanted to kill them. Just like they wanted to kill Jesus, they now want to kill the apostles. They, they hate them. They're upset. They're enraged. They, they heard what they said. They're upset beyond any measure. And now the only thing is left is they want to kill them. Literally, the word kill here is the word which means to remove or to take away, to get rid of by destroying or executing. They want to remove them and their message from the planet. And just like the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead, now they want his followers dead as well. They had had enough of this preaching about Jesus, and they intended to slay the apostles. David said back in Psalm 37, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Psalm 37, verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy and to slay those whose way is upright. Psalm 37, 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. 
Jesus talked about this in Matthew 23, 34. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of, ha- some of whom you will crucify and kill, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So Jesus speaking to the unbelieving Pharisees, they look, you guys are gonna kill some of the, pro- the prophets and the New Testament prophets who come to you. You're gonna kill them. Jesus it said even in Matthew 23, 37, how sad he was about this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. We have to understand that Christ knew that there would be many there who heard his preaching and teaching and would not be saved. The apostles are being faithful to preaching the gospel. Not everybody's coming to Christ. We told you the church is growing, and that's exciting, but there were also many who wanted to kill them for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people are dying even today all over this world for the gospel's sake. Even as I speak this morning, there are Christians who are being hunted down and killed for believing in and following Jesus. Christians have to either flee the country or face dire consequences right now for their faith in Afghanistan. We've heard all the reports of what's happening in Afghanistan as the Taliban has taken over. In fact, I was reading about it a little bit this week from the Open Doors Mission Agency, and and they had interviewed one Afghan believer who said this, quote, how we survive daily, only God knows. He knows because he has been kind to dwell with us, but we are tired of all the death around us. You know, when we talk about what we're tired of, it's the vaccine mandate, and I think that's a serious thing. But what they're talking about is still a whole new level of like, hey, we're just tired of people dying all around us, that those who profess Christ are being hunted down and killed every day. And we need to be praying for our brothers and our sisters in Christ who are being persecuted and killed. In America, at this moment, we are not being killed for our faith but we are facing imminent persecution like never before. I did read an email that I got from Focus on the Family, kind of like a a broad email this week that told about prayer being banned from a high school football game. As you might know, the tradition of post-game prayer after a Friday night high school football game runs deep in the Bible Belt. And recently, in response to the complaints of an out-of-state secularist organization, the local school district in Putman County, Tennessee, told its coaches and other employees that they were no longer allowed to lead students in a prayer after the game. The secular United Americans organization fighting against prayer celebrated their win, claiming on Twitter, a great win for church and state separation. Well, when the parents of the school district got wind of the order, they were not pleased And so they organized themselves, and one parent wrote, quote, we do realize this is a public school, but it has always been optional for players to pray, and this has been a voluntary event. And then they proposed a solution, and they got together and issued a statement where they said, players that still want to pray will have to do it on their own. After the game, players and cheerleaders that choose to will be on the field praying on their own. And then the statement from the parents said this, we will join hands and encircle them from a distance as a sign of protection and solidarity in choosing to continue to pray. This all happened like last week. So guess what happened on Friday night? Friday night after the football game, hundreds of players, parents, and cheerleaders, and fans gathered together and prayed on the football field on their own. There's no coach that's going to stop them. There's no principal that's going to stop them. There's no law that's going to stop them. These folks in Tennessee said, hey, we're going to get together and pray. One person said, nothing energizes the faith community faster than being told that prayer is unacceptable. I appreciate those Tennessee Christians. But don't move there, all right? We want you here. We want you to stay here, all right? But we appreciate the fact that, like, hey, you know what? No matter what we're being told, no matter what's being crammed down our throats, we stand for Christ. 
And we've got to realize, as this verse says, they were enraged and wanted to kill us. We shouldn't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come our way, First Peter says. And so when you stand for Christ, you've got to realize that you will be attacked. But you can always fight back. And so the first response to the faithful preaching of the gospel is an aversion to Christians, which is full of anger and malice as we've seen here in verse 33. Let's look now at verses 34 through 39 where we read our second response to the gospel would be a little bit milder, much milder in fact. You could adopt a wait and see approach. You could adopt a wait and see reproach. Your next blank says a caution was rendered. A caution was rendered, verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So Gamaliel offers this caution. Some react to a convicting presentation of the gospel, not with open hostility, but with indifference. And this was a well-known Pharisee in the council, Gamaliel. He was, the easiest, he was easily the most prominent rabbi of that time, one of the greatest Jewish people of all of history. You may know that it was Gamaliel who discipled Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul. In fact, he's mentioned later in the book of Acts where Paul says in Acts 22 verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. And so he had a huge impact and influence, particularly over the Pharisees as a Pharisee. Now he has an opportunity to address the council. And here in Acts 5, this is the same Gamaliel who, again, had warned uh, his fellow members uh, of the Sanhedrin, the same one who had been discipling Saul. So after giving orders to put the men outside, he wants a little private audience with the council. And in verse 35, again, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. He says, take care. In the original language, it means to be in a state of alert, to be concerned about. Gamaliel is urging the council to consider carefully so as not to make a rash decision, but rather they are to think it through. And then he gives his argument by citing, your next blank, two examples of people who that they ought to consider what happened to them before they make a decision about the apostles. There's two examples that are cited by Gamaliel, verses 36 and 37. For before these days, Theudius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Well, as you look at a little bit in church history and some of the historians, we don't have a whole lot of information about this particular insurrectionist. We do know that when he detested Herod the Great, uh, and uh, when the, I should say, we know that when the detested Herod the Great died in 4 BC, there was numerous uh, liberators who surfaced in Israel and formed various zealous sects that wanted to overthrow not only some of the Jewish uh, folks who were in charge, but also the Romans. And so you had a lot of, of, of people attacking, and there were 400 men in this case, and they nevertheless came up short in their attempt. And then Gamaliel gives a second example of somebody who tried their best and yet failed. Verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so Gamaliel's second example was Judas of Galilee, not to be confused of Judas Iscariot, but Judas of Galilee, he led a revolt against the census ordered by Quirinius. Jesus' disciple named Simon the Zealot was thought to have traced his origin to him. The well-known historian Josephus gave a rather full account of this movement, which led to the execution of Judas, but also spawned further rebellion. And so Gamaliel is emphasizing that Theudas was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Judas the Galilean was also perished and all who followed him were scattered. So Gamaliel is obviously using the argument, history 
tends to repeat itself. Gamaliel is suggesting that they should take a sit back and let's watch what happens approach. He is for the side of neutrality. He is for, uh, for being somewhat in the middle. He is, uh, he is saying we shouldn't care uh, so much uh, about, what, uh, about what happens. We should care that we just sit back and let what happens happen. But Jesus made it clear that it is impossible to be neutral about the gospel and about the gospel's message. Jesus had already said in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying, you can't sit on the fence. You are either for me or you are against me. And so we read next in verses 38 through 39, your next blank says Gamaliel's advice was accepted. His advice was accepted, verse 38. So here's what he's saying. So in the present case, Gamaliel speaking, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Again, his counsel was to keep away, to let them alone. And in one sense, you could say there is some admirable logic here. First time I read this account, probably as a teenager, just kind of reading through my book of Acts, I'm like, oh, I like Gamaliel. He seemed like a good guy. He seemed like good wisdom. I'm like, yeah, look at this. One of these unbelievers stood up and stuck it to the rest of the council, and I kind of liked his approach. And I'm just saying, this morning, there is some admirable logic here. If this plan is according to man, it will fail just like the other two. That's the argument he's making. But if it is of God, you can't stop it. So I would say from an unbeliever, Gamaliel, to unbelievers, the whole Jewish council, from an unbeliever to unbelievers, it is kind of good advice, but, you knew that was coming, right? But this is not the kind of advice we should be giving as Christians. Christians are not supposed to just sit back and see what happens. Skeptics are not supposed to set up conditions that must be met until they become believers in Christ and followers of his gospel. The Bible never encourages us to take a back seat approach. By the way, Gamaliel's test has nothing to do with right theology. It's only pragmatic and it's only about movements of men and the numbers of men who follow them. It's kind of like a populist movement. It, it, that's what it's about. He's assuming, according to his logic, that if there is a successful following, then it must be of God, but if someone dies, then it is not of God. But there are a lot of successful followings that are not of God. Every cult, like the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, have large followings, but does that mean it's of God? It's because you have a lot of people who agree with a, a charismatic leader and they start to head in a direction doesn't mean it's of God. False religions like Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism have huge followings and that does not mean that their religions are in any way of the God of the Bible. And just because the leader dies on the flip side doesn't mean that somehow it's been a failure. There are many Christian martyrs and that doesn't mean that Christianity has failed. My goodness, Jesus himself died on the cross, and that does not mean his religion failed. Obviously, he was raised from the dead. Martyrs are raised in glory, but we understand that just because people die for the gospel doesn't mean somehow the gospel's not true. And just because the leader dies doesn't mean it all fails. So what they should be examining, instead of this pragmatic approach that Gamaliel is taking with the council, what they should be examining is the teaching of the apostles. And if what they are teaching is of God, then they should follow it. And if what they're teaching is not of God, then they should not follow it. And the only way to know if their teaching is accurate is to compare what's being taught with scripture. The Bible itself is the litmus test of truth. 
not the size of your church or the size of your following. It all starts with, do you know the truth from God's word? And that starts with, have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. So in other words, if a Christian was addressing the council, and they already were, they were saying, hey, you killed Jesus, you need to repent, you need to believe in him. We understand that's what the Bible says. It doesn't say, hey, take your time, you know, take as much time as you need. We're in no rush here. Evangelists say that kind of stuff all the time, and you may have said that as, your, as well to a family member or a friend. I, I'm just saying the Bible never says it like that. That's all I'm saying. It never says, take your time. It says, today is the day of salvation. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8 says it this way. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Referring back to the wilderness times where the Israelites were questioning God and questioning Moses and his authority, and they were at times hardening their hearts out in the wilderness, and so they were addressed and say, no, 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 if you hear the voice of God speaking through the man of God, in that case Moses, don't harden your hearts. And so he's saying now to the New Testament believers who have a Hebrew background, in the same way, you can't harden your hearts when you hear from God. Don't, in other words, don't, don't linger, don't wait Come to Christ today, and when God's people are following God's plan, nothing will stop them from fulfilling God's purposes. Second Chronicles thirteen twelve says, O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. And so when God is doing a saving work and a sanctifying work, nothing can stop him. Acts eleven seventeen. Look over at Acts 11, just a couple of chapters, 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? They're reporting about the salvation in another place and saying, hey, these people, these people who were in Caesarea, uh, who were of Gentile background with Cornelius' house, they've come to Christ. I can't stop it. The gospel's spreading beyond Jews to the Gentiles. I can't stop it. And so we have to understand this morning that if you're here this morning, and let's say that you're kind of hesitating between two opinions, you could be a young teenager, you could be a college student, you could be a visitor this morning, you could be someone who's an adult this morning and you're hesitating about, well, I just want to give it some more time, I want to wait and see how God works out stuff in life and see how this whole works out before I really decide whether or not I'm going to trust Christ. It's amazing to, to think about how many people just want to wait. And this morning, I'm pleading to you this morning as a pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, and I'm saying, wait no more. There's nothing else to wait for. Ask God to open your eyes, and he will. Ask God to provide the faith, and he will. Ask God to save you, and he will. Don't ever oppose God. You can't. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but come to him today, and he will by no means cast you out. Don't follow the worldly wisdom of Gamaliel. Come to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. Procrastinating is a lie from Satan. Tomorrow belongs to the devil, but today belongs to God. Step out in faith and see God work in your life in such a way that will change your life forever. And so as we look at these first two verses to the preaching of the gospel, we see here clearly these first two headings. There is an aversion with anger and malice. The second was there's this indifference that included neutrality. And so let's look at a third response to the preaching of the gospel this morning. Number three, there's an affirmation of the gospel with joy at any cost. Your next blank says, the punishment that you may receive. Verse 40, after the apostles here had preached, they see the hatred, they see the indifference, and then in verse 40, they, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. So we see that if you're gonna be faithful like a believer of one of the apostles, one who's following in that vein, 
then there's a punishment that blank says, the punishment that you may receive. Verse, verse 40 here, you've got to be willing to face that possible punishment. If you affirm the gospel message, if you do become an avid follower of Christ, if you do follow him at any cost, then you will be a recipient of eternal life. That's why we follow him, because we love him, because we've been moved by his display of love for us through the gospel, and we have eternal life. That's all that really matters. And yet at the same time, you've got to understand that if you're an avid follower of Christ, you've got to be willing to follow him at any cost. And that means that your life here on earth will not be devoid of any persecution or even physical pain. There's no guarantee <coughs> excuse me, that somehow as Christians we'll avoid persecution in any way. Instead, the exact opposite is what the Bible and Christ uh, prepares us for. And so what happened to these guys is that they were called in, uh, they were reprimanded again, and then what does it say? Verse 40, they beat them and charged them not to speak in his name and let him go. This was the same type of beating or flogging that Jesus faced on his way to the cross. This beating was a severe, bloody, and potentially life-threatening whipping. Deuteronomy 25 verse 3 reminds us that this kind of beating was to be no more than 40 lashes. 40 stripes may be given him, Deuteronomy 25 3, but no more. Lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Jesus had said to his followers in Mark 13 verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And so this prophecy of the Lord Jesus in Mark 13, 9 is now being fulfilled here in Acts 5. And after they beat the apostles in that gruesome way, they charged them not to speak again in the name of Jesus. We see that the Jewish leaders had already tried this just in the previous chapter in Acts 4, verse 18. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This, is, uh, this was somewhat uh, of the normal response that the Jewish leaders were having towards Christians throughout the first century. In fact, it, it's what Saul, before he was Paul, used to do to Christians, to beat them, right? Paul was regularly persecuting Christians in this way. In fact, he shares that in part of his testimony Paul, in Acts twenty-two nineteen, 19, he said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. This was normal for the stronger Jewish uh, believers uh, who believed in Judaism more than they believed in the God of the Bible would take these Christians and they would beat them. But when God changes your life, you go from being persecuted uh, by, from others, you go from persecuting others, rather, this, I'm thinking about Paul here, when God changes your life, you go from persecuting others to being willing to be persecuted. You go from binding others to being willing to be bound. You go from beating others to being willing to be beaten. And that's what Paul did. He, he was giving out the stripes and then he started taking them. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he suffered many imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. And he goes on just to explain all the hardships that he suffered as a Christian. And how did Paul respond to all of this? How did he respond to the immense persecution that he himself faced? Well, after he logged everything that he went through in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, that's where he reminds us when he says that he called out to God for help. He pleaded to the Lord three times. I pleaded with the Lord to help him out. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my grace is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul then said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am, con I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. I think that when Paul wrote that, he's talking about a little bit in the midst of the physical persecution. You know, we talk about it sometimes more in the sense of I have a trial, I have a, you know, something that's kind of nagging at me. He's talking about like, man, I've been beaten for the gospel. I've been stoned dead. And yet, even when I was weak in those circumstances, God gave me strength and I am strong in Christ. He's boasting about the power of Christ. Well, how did the apostles respond to their persecution? Verse 41, your next blank says, the praise that we should offer. The praise that we should offer. So they were beaten, challenged, charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then they were let go. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The apostles rejoiced. The word rejoiced here means to be in a state of happiness and well-being. How could they rejoice when their bodies had just been beaten? How could they rejoice when their backs had been flogged? How could they rejoice when their bodies had been whipped? Well, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. They may not have been doing well on the outside, but on the inside they were doing just fine. They may not have been physically comfortable, but their souls have found comfort in Christ. They may have had their bodies racked, but they were rejoicing in their souls. Jesus had said in Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We gotta learn this, dear Christian. I don't know that I've learned this. I don't know that you've learned this, first of all, because we haven't faced that kind of persecution with immense beating and the threat of death. And yet, when they faced it, their faith shined through. They were counted worthy, is what the text says. To, To be counted worthy means to consider someone worthy to receive some privilege, benefit, or recognition. That's how they viewed it. This is, a, this is a blessing, they're saying. This is some benefit to me. This is a privilege for me. This is me being, to be, to be able to be recognized to having been associated with the name of Jesus. The benefit was that they were identified as being Christ followers. The benefit was that they had been forgiven of all of their sins that they had heaven as an inheritance that had been guaranteed for them. And the fact they were recognized as being followers of Jesus was an honor that they took seriously. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 13 through 16, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, You are blessed because of the spirit of glory that God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is the way we should respond in the midst of our suffering. There is no shame in suffering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, let us learn to rejoice. Let us be blessed because of the spirit of glory that rests on us. Let us glorify God in our pain. We too have the privilege of praising God and can be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And then in verse 42, we read your last blank there, the proclamation that we should continue. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease from teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Listen, nothing's gonna stop a true Christian from talking about the truth of Christ. The apostles did not heed man, but they heeded God. And so every day, please note, every day, not just on Sunday, they proclaim Christ They preach the gospel in the temple and they preach Christ from house to house. They preach Christ in public and they preach Christ in private. They practice mass evangelism and they also practice personal discipleship. In fact, the word for preaching in this verse means literally to bring the good news. It means to proclaim the divine message of salvation. The apostles were the first models of biblical gospel-centered preaching. And when the Holy Spirit indwells their lives, they were totally changed. 
That's how it ought to be with us, right? When the Holy Spirit is given to us, we are totally changed. Going to church and living for Christ is no longer a duty. It is a delight. It's a delight for us to follow in this example of Acts 2.42. The apostles devoted themselves to, to the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers together with all the believers. And hopefully we're doing the same, devoting ourselves to the preaching of the word and to the fellowship of the saints. And when we live like that, we have an undeniable influence on the world in which we live. In fact, Acts 17.6 says, these men have turned the world upside down. And when we're preaching Christ, we ought to be then uh, those who are having that aroma of Christ. For we are the aroma of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 2, to one a fragrance from death to death and another a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So are you counted worthy? Are you counted worthy to be called a Christian and then to suffer for his name? I read an article this week that said that a shovel possibly saved a 74-year-old lady in Florida. You want to hear about it? (laughs) This sweet older lady was gardening outside her home on Thursday morning of this week when all of a sudden, there was a seven-foot-long alligator that pulled her into a nearby canal and chomped into her right leg. The neighbor said that he heard screaming and then ran out to see this woman in the water fighting off the gator. The woman escaped by hitting the carnivorous reptile 20 to 30 times in the head with a shovel until the alligator couldn't take it anymore and let go. Moral of the story, if a 74-year-old woman can fight off an alligator with a shovel, then you can fight off the onslaught of this world's agenda with the word of God. This woman had a shovel, you have the sword of the spirit. This older woman emerged victorious even in her limited physical strength. You too can rise victorious in the power of the Spirit. This woman had no time to lose. We too must be urgent, courageous, and persistent in our witness for Christ. Are you counted worthy to suffer for the sake of his name? If you're here this morning and God has spoken to your heart from his word after I close in prayer and we sing our final song, we have a few people by the back door. They would love to talk to you about how you could truly repent this morning and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have any need of any kind, it would be our joy and our honor to minister to you through prayer this morning there in the back door after our final song. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this incredible reminder from the apostles of their testimony, their faith for you. Help us not to to ever be afraid of the aversion and the malice that we might face of those who hate the gospel. Help us not to ever fall into that that middle position of mediocrity, neutrality. Let's just kind of sit back and wait type response. Instead, God, help us to be like the apostles who just affirmed the gospel all the more, who affirmed the gospel at any cost, who were not afraid, they were not ashamed, they were not taken back, They just kept faithfully preaching the word, rejoicing every day, gladly following their Lord. And I just pray, God, that we would just take a a page from their book today and that in the suffering and the difficulties that we face and that we find ourselves in this week, we would remember the faithfulness of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of his followers that we've read about today, that you would give us courage and the ability to fight the fight, to stand for Christ, just to be counted worthy as we suffer in his name. And it's in the powerful and precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.